Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Ben Pring. Ben co-founded and leads the Center for the Future of Work at Cognizant, an American multinational technology company. Ben was named one of the 30 management thinkers to watch in 2020 by Thinkers 50. He was recently named a leading influencer on the future of work by Analytica. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. I'm happy to have you here. Great to be with you, Ursula. Thank you for having, having me on. It's terrific to be with you. So uh, one of the things you, I mean, I was fascinated by your book, um, Monster, because I haven't uh, really read much about folks in the technology realm really viewing the, the concerns that a lot of people have about technology. And one of the things you said was technology on which the future is being built is entirely unsafe. So tell us more about that. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, there's different aspects to that. I mean, one is clearly the sort of cybersecurity aspect of this. You know, we're, we're, we're accelerating into this fourth industrial revolution, as people talk about, where everything is becoming more digitalized, healthcare, education, um, all different aspects of society. And, and clearly COVID and the pandemic sort of been an accelerant on top of um, something that was moving very quickly. Yeah, but um, sure. anybody who knows anything about cybersecurity kind of knows that the foundations for this this wave of building are pretty insecure. And I mean, you just look in the media every day, there, there seems to be a story about hacking or um, ransomware attacks at, at a geopolitical level, a national level, national infrastructure at a co- corporate level. My company, Cognizant, got caught up in a ransomware attack last year. Mm, and then at wow. a personal level, you know, our own sort of transactions, our own online lives are are all very insecure. And, and I think that's got to give us pause for thought that um, um, that if we are going to be able to successfully, you know, move forward and, and build a, a world that, um, you know, works, <laughs> I, I think we need to pay more attention to that and, and across a range of different aspects of it. So that's one way we think about it. The other notion of safety in our book, Monster, is really thinking about... Um, how we're sort of interacting uh, digitally, how we're interacting on social media and um, uh, on, on online platforms. And uh, again, I think unless you're, you know, um, particularly Pollyannish or particularly have a, a, a very clear vested interest in sort of denying an issue here, I think most of us can can realize that there is a bit of an issue. We have an issue with the, the dark side of a lot of the technologies mm-hmm that have become more prevalent in the last few years. And, you know, going back to your initial thought, why would somebody in technology like me want to, you know, throw a red flag and say there's a problem here? It's simply because I feel a responsibility. My co-author, Paul Rorick, feels a responsibility. The company I represent, Cognizant, feels a responsibility to say, look, 
we love technology. We work, I've personally worked in technology for 35 years. I, I'm completely aware and an and evangelist for its positive impact it's had on the world uh, in lots of different ways. But again, to deny that there's an issue around social media, to deny there's an issue around cybersecurity, to deny there's an issue around disinformation, um, I think serves none of us well. I think we've got to we've got to look at these issues. We've got to look at these challenges, and it behooves people like us, people who work in technology, who love technology, to to step forward with thoughts on how we can keep tech in a good place, how we can keep this show on the road, and and not allow this more negative future that some people you know can see ahead to come right. true. That's basically what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Well, you talk in the book about trading our data, our privacy for our collective convenience. And you also mentioned the pandemic. I mean, there were a few things you mentioned I really want to follow up on, but let's talk a bit about the role of the pandemic in this situation and how things, uh, I think you use the word escalated, or maybe that maybe that's not the word, but in any case, the role of the pandemic in yeah. in contributing to this situation. Well, again, yeah, it's the sort of double-edged sword. It's the classic double-edged sword, isn't it, Ersta? That, um, you know, because of the pandemic, we've all become more digital. People are working at home uh, in numbers that they weren't beforehand. People are socializing on home, uh, uh, from home online. And so that's been great. I mean, that's kept the, that's kept yeah. the wheels of industry kind of ticking over. Imagine... Well, People's sanity too. Yeah, yeah. Imagine what it would be like if we tried to do all of this, um, you know, lockdown prior to an internet era when we couldn't have worked at home, you know, as routinely as, it, as this. I mean, you could argue, of course, that uh, we wouldn't have locked down <laughs> in the way we have down we have done um, in a pre-internet era because we simply couldn't have done that. Um, and, you know, and, and as you say, socializing, it's sort of kept us sane. It's kept us in touch with our friends and our, our families and then entertainment's all online. So that's great. And that's that's wonderful. And again, that's the sort of positive power of it. But when you think again, when you flip the coin, you look at the other side of the, the, the double-edged sword, um, the notion that uh, to maintain our safety and our health we have to trade that off for our privacy, the very notion of privacy. Uh, again, I think for people like me, that's a troubling uh, equation. That's a troubling um, formula that we have to figure out because, uh, again, I don't, don't want to be hyperbolic, but it's not just me saying things like this. Uh, some of your listeners may have seen last week the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, saying that the only thing Orwell got wrong was his date. It's not 1984. Wow. It, it's 2024 right. um, that we have to worry about. So he was off by 40 years. But right. we've sort of accelerated into this world where the notion of privacy to some people seems sort of quaint and ridiculous, and, mm. and particularly younger generations don't really even understand yeah, uh, they, they've grown up in. They it. don't know another world. No, yeah. they don't know another world, and yet people of my vintage, um, uh, you know, people a little bit older, I think, are very uncomfortable with this notion that if we're going to exist in a in an online world where all of your information is tracked and traded 
and everything you do is monitored. I mean, that does sound, as I say, again, not being hyperbolic, but that does sound awfully like what Orwell warned us about. And I'm concerned, and Paul, my co-author, we're concerned that we're taking lots of short-term expedient steps that seem logical in the short term, but are going to have longer-term consequences, which aren't going to be so positive. And, And again, I think that's a very... Uh, real debate in 2021 that we as individuals, we as societies, we as corporations involved in this, we should be having this debate. We should be thinking about this much more than a lot of people are. Uh, And again, that's the point of writing a book about this to try and throw up a signal and and, and get uh, people to react to that and to to catalyze a conversation. Mm, Yeah. Well, we've we've. Uh, I mean, I'm really glad to hear that. And I, I, one of the things you you talk about a fair bit in the book is the, the price for our addiction to our devices. I, I think everybody's been in the situation where you're in a room full of people and no one is talking to anyone else. We've all got our heads bowed down. Or you're in a restaurant and you see a family with kids, and every one of them has is looking at their devices and not even talking to each other. So. What's the price we pay for this addiction that we've developed? And I feel the tug myself. I, I, if my phone is nearby, I just jump to looking at it. If I have, you know, a nanosecond free instead of what I used to do was to just kind of look around and maybe even engage with people. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, again, this is, this is an incredible story. Um, and it's a very new story. I think, again, we're sort of too close to this to, to fully appreciate just how new this phenomena is, Ursula, in a way. I mean, you know, the cell phone, the modern kind of iPhone-based cell phone has only been around, what, 14 years? Social mm-hmm. media yeah. has only really been sort of, I think in, in 2007, I think there were about 3 million people on Facebook, mm. and now it's almost 3 billion people. And, yeah. and, and that's to a large degree because of this sort of collision between social media and cell phones so it's always in your hand and and obviously the um the technology the apps the algorithms have been designed to to be so interesting so fun so cool so they're very uh, effective yeah incredibly effective but but again the the sort of less positive word and you used it yourself was, was sort of addicted to that and um and again what i'm concerned and what paul and i are concerned about and what we raise in the book is um, that's that's you, an adult. You've become addicted, and you were brought up by your parents with, you know, the notion of sort of deferred gratification and the ability to concentrate and the ability to focus. Um, there's a whole generation of kids who've been guinea pigs in the last 15 years, who have grown up in this era of of social media slash cell phone addiction. And who knows what the consequences of that are? I mean, I, again, I think without being hyperbolic, I think this is an incredible experiment and I can't help but be worried what the outcome of this is. I Just one little anecdote that'll perhaps resonate for folks listening in. I was on a, I was on a cross-country flight back in the days when people were flying pre-pandemic yeah. right. uh, from Boston. Near, I, knew, I live near Boston to SFO, San Francisco. You know, it's a six-hour flight. I'm sort of sitting there and it gradually dawns on me that the couple in front of me, who I just casually seen out the corner of my eye looking at their cell phones, 
they had a little six-month-old baby in front of them. And on oh, this wow. six-hour flight, they basically didn't, you know, deal with the kid at all. They just looked at their phones the whole time. Wow. And, uh, I mean, just think about what that means for a child to be brought up, uh, in essence, competing for a love and attention from their parents with a cell phone and where they're looking up and their parents' faces are blurred and obscured by the back of a, of a phone. Wow. I mean, that's to me sort of chilling and shocking when you think about that. And yet yeah. because it's yeah. happened in such a explosion in such a short period of time, such a tsunami of this, and we've all, we've all sort of gone down this rabbit hole. Um, I don't think enough people are questioning whether that's a good thing or not. And, and final thing, not final thing, but just, again, to round out this thought, I feel personally um, uncomfortable with this because here I am as a sort of tech evangelist <laughs> uh, talking about the, you know, the, 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 the uh, new exciting technologies all the time and extolling their virtues and Saying you know, don't be an, don't be don't be a luddite, you know, get with the program. Yeah. And 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 my own kids now, sort of in their late teens, early twenties, you know, I I made them a guinea pig, and um, they grew up as guinea pigs in this experiment. And I sort hmm. of over overrode my in what wife. Way? Well, in the sense that I gave them phones when they were 12, 13, hmm. and allowed okay. them unfettered access lost the battle of saying, oh, put the phone down at the dinner table and sort of gave, gave <laughs> up trying to have that fight every evening. And um, and I can see what it's done to them and I can see how addicted they are and how their whole lives just revolve around this thing. And the, the heartbreaking aspect of it, uh, Slur, and again, this may be a little bit of the surprise in the story, the sort of punchline of the story, is that my son, uh, I saw an essay that he wrote as part of his college application process um, a while ago, and he he was what the question in the uh, the application um, uh, essay was uh, if there's one thing you could tell politicians to do to make the world uh, a better place right now, what would it be? And he wrote this very um, you know passionate, well articulated, five hundred word essay all around the theme of cancelling social media. Wow, really? And I, and I hadn't, I hadn't co coached him into saying that. I, you know, <laughs> you know 18-year-old boys don't really listen to their dad or talk to their dad much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I had, it wasn't as though he was channeling my thoughts, but he wrote this, yeah. as I say, very impassioned essay saying cancel social media. I think it's ruined my childhood. It's ruined a generation's wow. childhood. Wow. Uh, all, all of the kids Amazing. I know have got, issues with you know, body dysmorphia and everybody's trying to create the perfect selfie. And again, I mean, we can say, we can, as older folks, we can put this into the context of saying that, oh, well, this is just what our parents said about TV. And, you know, they thought that was the devil and they thought that was an evil. Um, but that's nothing, I think, in comparison with what's going on now. Yeah. And, well, the movie, The Social Dilemma, really highlighted how intentional it all is. I mean, from initially an innocuous standpoint, but it's become so pervasive. And I mean, it's the same, it's parallel really to how people are concerned about 
the impact of the pandemic on kids in terms of their socialization. I mean, this is even more widespread and it's been going on for longer. Well, that's so. right. Yes, exactly. And that's a great movie. And we've spoken to Tristan Harris quite a bit. And um, no, to take our hats off to him. He, he did a, a terrific job with that. And and yeah, you're right. So the, again, there are lots of people um, uh, making similar arguments at the moment and, and and saying things that perhaps a couple of years ago people wouldn't have said. I mean, and, and again, not just not just uh, people at uh, you know individual level. I mean, the the there's a, a government minister in the UK where I come from, um, the minister for education, minister for children, who's basically said very very similar things recently. And the UK government is back. Uh, introduced legislation recently to deal with some of these issues. So I think the tide is turning. I think people are beginning to realize uh, quite what a problem and issue we've got. And and again, to, to just to round out that thought, and you sort of introduced this point, Ursula, which is a very, very valid point, is that we're not saying, and you know, heaven forbid that we would suggest this, that any of the people in these companies writing these algorithms, offering these platforms are, are bad or evil in any way. Yeah, we're we're sure. not saying that at all. They, they've sort of, they've uh, been surprised themselves. I think they've kind of, they've, they, uh, it's like a sort of miner that's um, found a seam of gold. They just <laughs> found this thing out in the wilderness and wow, this, I can't believe it. And, um, right. And and what they've tapped into, they've obviously sort of doubled down on, and where they see things work and it gets uh, interest and traction and attention, then it's obvious that they well will we'll do more of that. And that, that's well, there's a, there's a bit of curiosity or intrigue too, like oh, I wonder what would happen if we did this. Exactly, and this whole notion of A/B testing that's mm -hmm. sort of heart of algorithms in social media. Yeah, you you put up two versions, and one performs better than the other, so you yeah. do more of that second version. Again, that's all completely logical. There's nothing unethical or wrong about any of that. Um, but but having said all of that, <laughs> it's undeniable that. Um, the, the the consequence of that, the end result of that, is a generation of people uh, who can't tear themselves away from these things. And mm -hmm. as you say, and as Sherry Turkle, the MIT professor, pointed out a few years ago, the, all these people sitting together at the dinner table alone together. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Well, it's great that your son is is self-reflective enough to be able to look at that. That's encouraging to me. Yeah. Something that you talk about in the book that I hadn't really ha heard expressed in this way is that um, our narcissistic rage gets vented. Um, this whole idea of you be you, no matter who gets hurt, I think was a really articulate way that you said it. Um, talk a bit about how that's evolving and, and what you see um, as a, 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 and then maybe we can move into solution of yes. what do you see as a solution for that? Because it's become so rampant, so yeah. widespread. Yeah. No. Well, that, that's right. That this notion that all of kind of, all of the rage in the world that prior to a you know modern internet age would have been channeled into having a bad back or having a heart attack or. <laughs> or um, at a kind of global level, channeled into war, all of that rage now that people have, you know, through human history felt is now channeled through these machines that are all the rage. <laughs> um, 
And so what you see in social media all of the day, uh, you know, every 25, 8, 24, 7, whatever, is you see the rage that um, a 14-year-old girl feels that she's not Kim Kardashian mm -hmm. uh, and she's not living that life and all the FOMO she feels, you know, the fear of missing out mm -hmm. and, and all of the rage that a 50-year-old feels that, uh, the world isn't interested in him anymore and is sort of prioritizing the rights of other people over him. And he's not Jeff Bezos. He's not famous and on the cover of Forbes and he's still trying to make his mortgage payments. All of that rage, which is, you know, part of the human condition. Now, with this thing in your hand, you can tweet that out. I mean, mm -hmm. you might have, you know, gone on the golf course and, and screamed that out or you might have screamed it in your car. Um but now all of that is sort of channeled and man made manifest and real in the world through people tweeting and yeah. saying, you know, F you and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, and, and that, again, that rage, which is bubbling up and manifesting in all sorts of ways in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, in the Gilets Jaunes movement in France, in the, the demise of democracy in Hong Kong, in Brexit, in, in what happened politically in America in the last four years. It's just sort of bubbled up and is being channeled through these machines. And um, again, it's kind of a, a torrent. It's a tsunami. And uh, it's, it's making social media uh, as a place to be, a place to live, a place to spend your time. I think, again, for more and more people, just a extremely uncomfortable, sort of unpleasant experience to have on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's been research that, you know, the more you vent your anger, it actually increases it rather than the other well, one. Well, again, around, that, that, is... that ties back to the, the previous comment, was uh, you know, the previous thought we just had was that the algorithm, when the algorithm senses heat, the algorithm then pours gasoline on that on that yeah, heat. Right. That's that's the business model. Is wherever we can find heat, we 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 draw more people towards that heat, and so you that's how you get traction, and that's why things blow up on social media. And again, why mm. if you're spending your life in there in that environment, everything seems everything seems like a constant uh, war. Everything seems like a constant. Yeah. Um, battleground a constant argument and then mm -hmm. of course that uh you know phenomena uh is tied together with the mainstream media mainstream media phenomena and so you have this unholy alliance really between social media and mainstream media where both are sort of egging each other on the whole time to get more and more crazy more and more extreme and right. and, and some people go down that rabbit hole and they end up uh, you know, believing in QAnon, and then they go further down that rabbit hole, and then they show up in DC on January the sixth. And that's yeah. again to deny the reality of that. I think is 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 sophism. It's it's just undeniable. And then it gets to your point. What what, what do we do about that? That's right. that's really what we're yeah. uh, we've written the book about to try and suggest some solutions to what we can do about it. Well, let's talk more about that. And I know one thing I was very struck by in the solutions that you offer is accepting individual responsibility. And I mean, it seems like uh, yes, of course, we would want to do that. But how do we identify where those opportunities are for yeah. individual responsibility? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the way we think about it, as um, we've tried to frame the book around this, is to is to recognize that um, is that individuals have uh, a role in the solution, and institutions, uh, governments have a role. And mm-hmm. I think again, part of the problem we've got at the moment is is both sides of that equation are sort of pointing at the other. You know, individuals are thinking, oh, the government will fix this. And governments are thinking, well, individuals will sort of figure this out themselves. Mm. So we've got this bit, we've got a bit of a sort of standoff at the moment where either both sides are looking at the other and nobody's really doing anything. So we framed within the book a series of thoughts for just an ordinary individual reader, what they can do. And then we framed a series of thoughts about what politically, how in terms of how we sort of uh, organize ourselves as societies what we should be trying to do and and um what's sort of surprising to some people <laughs> you know we're talking about this very modern leading edge new technology i mean really at a personal level the 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 solution is the oldest wisdom known to mankind it's simply the golden rule um <laughs> you know do 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 unto others as you would have them do unto you i mean there are a lot of people and it's become the culture of social media uh, that people don't do what they would have d- done to them they do things that if somebody did them to them they would be absolutely sh- shocked and horrified by and or- or people behave differently online than they would in person. Well, yeah. So again, people are behind the screen, and just as we are in our cars when we're behind the windscreen, you know, you shout and say, "Oh, get out of the way, you, you know, stupid idiot!" And so people say, with with the bubble of an- anonymity, things that they would never say to somebody's face. And so that's one part of our recommendation at a sort of policy level is. One of the fundamental original sins of the internet is the notion of anonymity. The fact that you can have a an online social media profile, nobody knows who you are, right. and vent that that um, rage that you feel in a way that you couldn't do if you went into the public square. Mm-hmm. And so there was a logic and an argument to maintaining or establishing anonymity in cyberspace 25 years ago. Uh, but we can't run uh, cyberspace on the rules that we had from 25 years ago. We have to have rules for the modern era. And we're, we argue that anonymity uh, needs to be abolished. People, people uh, should have free right, uh, First Amendment rights, free speech. No, we're not trying to say close down free speech. But you have to own your speech as you would do if you went into your local golf club or if you went into the local parliament, your 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 selectman uh, meeting. You own what you say. And the fact that it, with the anonymity that people have at the moment, they don't own what they say. Again, that's uh, part of the sort of root cause of the problem here. Yeah. What do you think is the role for business in, in addressing this issue? I, I don't mean the the vendors who are uh, part of creating it, like Facebook or Apple or Amazon, but I'm talking about um, other businesses. What do you, th- in the same way that there's a role for individual responsibility, what's the, what do you think businesses can do to yeah. address Well, this? again, I think that the, the corporate response is in a way an extension of that golden rule, golden rule philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, of of treating your customers' data uh, in the way that you would want your data uh, to be uh, treated. I mean, 
one little kind of irony um, in big businesses, and I think smaller businesses as well, is that a lot of people are trying to um, aggregate data from customers, from prospects. Uh, they're trying to personalize solutions and services. And again, that's healthy and that's fine. Where it goes too far and it becomes sort of creepy and, and this surveillance model, the irony is that <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people who work in marketing and um, uh, and then they let out the guilty little little secret that they, on their own phone, they have do not track uh, apps in place. Right. So, I mean, think about that just as a little kind of funny example, but think about the, the, the paradox slash hypocrisy of that, that you yeah. want to scrape other people's data in a business context, but you don't want your own data to be scraped. To mm -hmm. me, that's a violation of the golden rule. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think corporates need to be, and I, I, I think to be fair, a lot of corporates are responsible in the way that data is used, responsible in the way that uh, algorithms are crafted. One of the one of the calls that we have in terms of legislation is what we call algorithm audits, uh, and in fact, this is part of what the UK government are going to be introducing. Uh, in, in new legislation is, uh, in, in, in essence, a, an audit um, oversight body that has the power, the, the legal power to look at the algorithms that the business is using to make decisions. Hmm. And, and I think that's an important uh, and good step forward. So we don't go into this sort of black box world where, you know, your, your mortgage isn't approved but the company, the bank can't tell you why. Oh, the algorithm said you can't have the mortgage. I mean, we don't, we don't want to live in that kind That's of black box world. Yeah. Um, so I think businesses need to be very aware of the power of the data, power of the algorithms, but to use those things you know, responsibly. Uh, and, and again, keep to the sort of corporate version of, of that golden rule. Yeah, I, I'm always a bit disturbed when I uh, see a business model where it is essentially based on um, knowledge about people's behavior that's then uh, leveraged into a product or service. And it feels not quite ethical to me. And, you know, maybe it's, it's my standpoint of, uh, you know, I, I see technology as a tool and I want to keep it that way. And, but I feel that without consent or awareness, it's, there's a, there's a danger there in um, not just our individual, uh, how it affects us individually, but societally when yeah. there's kind of widespread uses of that information from a technology. No, I mean, I, I, we totally agree. In fact, we wrote a book um, about eight years ago, um, Paul and I and a, another chap from our company, Malcolm Frank, um, about the rise of data and, and, and how data should be used. And, um, you know, we proposed at that stage, and this is 2014, that uh, really we should live in an opt-in world. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, we're sort of still living in an opt-out world. You know, everybody clicks the accept button. Very few people, um, uh, you know, really understand what that means. We think it behooves businesses to have explicit consent, as you say, explicit permission and an understanding of how their data is being used. 
rather than uh, having to opt out, which is this sort of complicated process at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think that's the sort of shift that is slowly happening and happening in different parts of the world. Uh, again, hopefully over a longer period of time, more people understand that that becomes more common. But I think that is a, an important framing of it, that it's uh, that, you know, businesses uh, should ask you as an individual if it's OK if we use your data rather than have this underlying assumption that they they have free rights to everything you you're, you're giving them. Yeah, and we're seeing that in Europe and Canada has implemented regulations and sounds like the UK as well. So there's definitely a shift in that yeah, direction, there's a which shift. is encouraging. And, uh, yeah, the GDPR rules from Europe are based mm -hmm. on that. There's a version of that uh, emerging in California as well. So yeah, mm -hmm. again, I think that's a good news story that people, um, uh, as I said earlier on, the sort of sentiments are beginning to change a little bit. Yeah. And it's a great model for, yes, this is actually doable and it's not as remote a possibility as one might think or one might be led to believe. Well, some, some people sort of make that objection. Well, how, how do we do this? It's all too yeah. complicated. And right. I mean, again, our simple rejoinder to that is that if we have the technology that can personalize three billion feeds, three billion people's feeds on Facebook or TikTok, then we have the underlying technology to put in place some, some guardrails here and rules of right. the road. Yeah, exactly. Well, something you talked about that very much struck me because it's really in the realm of impact and that's the, the, the water I swim in, that um, control of the internet um, by... Uh, those companies that currently control it, uh, some of the big ones that I've mentioned, it's preventing the internet from becoming the force for good that was intended. So how can the internet be a force for good even now, even yeah. in this climate? Yeah, well, I, again, I think um, people like me who've been you know, tech, tech watchers, tech analysts, tech evangelists for a long period of time, I, I mean, I think a lot of people were back in that early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, you know, incredibly excited about the possibilities of the yeah. internet and, and the technology. Right. And I think there's, a, again, a pretty kind of um, widely shared sense amongst a lot of those people that that sort of early promise hasn't really been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. um, people may know the name Tim Berners-Lee, who yeah. was the um, one of the kind of original uh, founding fathers of the internet, and yeah, you know, and he's very much on the record as saying that the internet, as he imagined it, as he sort of thought about it, hasn't really come true. And uh, I, we use this phrase in in the in the book that you know his 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 beautiful duck, duckling has sort of turned into an ugly swan. <laughs> you know, the right. kind of other way around that the phrase normally used. And um, in fact, he's got a lot of suggestions and he's got a new company that's trying to uh, change uh, and offer a sort of better version of managing data, a company called Solid. Uh, people should check that out. Um, but mm -hmm. I think, I, I, I mean, again, I think if we were, if we were, if Paul and I were ultimately pessimists, and thought, oh my God, this dystopian future that you know some people can imagine is is amongst us, is is upon us, and there's no way we can get out of that. I don't think we would have written the book, to be honest, Ursula. I mean, we, yeah. we probably, probably wouldn't get out of bed if if sure. things were that bad. <laughs> so you know, we're 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 optimistic that with um, people of goodwill coming together to make adjustments, to make pivots, to make changes, to put in place the rules of the road for this sort of information superhighway, 
um, that we can, uh, you know, get closer to fulfilling uh, the promise of of what we hoped and thought this technology could be. And again, it's it's not not one single step. It's not one single action. It's a whole myriad sense of issues. But it, it comes, I think, from an understanding. I think this is the again, this is a sort of structural strategic issue uh, at a corporate level, at a societal level, at a personal level, is that this has all happened so quickly and, you know, people are busy, understandably, got a lot to think about. People haven't really realized what's going on. They haven't really realized yeah. what, what, is, what is happening with data and with algorithms and how data is being used and what the trade-offs of offering your data are. I think people are yeah. still processing that, and that's understandable. Yeah. But True. I think the, the first step to fixing the problem or dealing with the problem uh, is really understanding what's going on. And, and as an individual or as a business leader, being aware of what's going on, I think that that's a, that's an important step um, you know, for a lot of people, a first step for some people, a second or a third step that, that we all need to be taking. Yeah. Well, you make some really excellent points, Ben. And um, I'd like to kind of broaden the the conversation and and finish up with our rapid round of questions about impact. So let me ask you the first one. What's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Um, I think that impact is about having a positive vision uh, mm. for whatever it is you're doing, whatever your role is, your job is, your task is, your leadership role is. I think it's about leading with optimism. I mean, we live, as we've been talking about, uh, in the in a, a fast-changing, confusing, complex world. And I think a lot of people are simply unsure of what to do next. And I think a leader somebody who can really generate impact at whatever scale, whatever le level they're doing, needs to, to step forward with a vision of this positive uh, you know, next step that we can take and encouragement to people to say, we've got to go on this journey and it's going to be worth doing that. So the leaders that in my career and my sort of 35 years of working, and then the leaders who I've read about in history and uh, in other fields. I think they're those people, Ursula. They're people that have a positive view of the future, acknowledge the reality of the challenge we're, we're facing, but have a positive, optimistic view and, and can create some certainty in the, in the midst of all, all of the confusion, the day-to-day -day confusion that all, all of us sort of swim in. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Nobody's defined it that way before. It's great. Well, the second question is, what's one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, again, I sort of talked about this earlier on, this notion that we're in this very kind of technological age, this very fast-moving age, but yet the principles of personal and, and, and you know, group success are really the sort of oldest principles known to mankind. And um, I sort of talked about the golden rule. I, I think at a personal level, one of the greatest personal attributes, and I, I, hope, I hope I have this a little bit myself, but I've certainly seen it in other people, is a fundamental sense of curiosity. 
uh, a fundamental sense of wanting to know, you know, what's around the river bend, what what's next. I, I, I've observed again in my friends and colleagues, in, in lots of people throughout my life, that a lot of people aren't curious. <laughs> they 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 don't particularly not they're not particularly interested either through anxiety or just laziness or just by inclination. That's not how they're wired. Uh, I think curiosity keeps you in the game and, you know, you may not always score a goal or, you know, get the touchdown, but if you're curious and you want to know what's happening and you want to know what the new algorithm is or what the new movie is or what the new business model is or what the new uh, record is, I, I, I think that fundamental sense of curiosity is absolutely key uh, to success. And as I say, I've seen business leaders be uncurious and sort of ossify into their own way of doing things. And mm -hmm. I think when you when you lose that curiosity or you've never had that curiosity, I think it's hard to operate amongst the VUCA, you know, the volatility, uncertainty, uh, uh, confusion, and ambiguity of the world. It's very mm -hmm. hard to operate because you're always looking for, you know, shortcuts. You're always looking for something that worked yesterday, hoping that that will work tomorrow. And, and that's mm -hmm. simply not true. And I think with that sense of curiosity and an openness to change, the beginner's mindset, as some people talk about, I think that that's, has served me certainly um, uh, quite well. Yeah, that's great. Well, the last rapid round question is, what's one piece of advice you'd offer someone who's saying, I want to have more impact? How, what would you say to them? Um, at the risk of sort of repeating myself, I think I'd say tie those last two thoughts together. I mean, have, <laughs> have, have, have that uh, manifest if you feel it or, or, or practice it double down on it if you if, if you don't feel it's as strong in you as you as it should be that sense of curiosity and then mm -hmm. tie that together with that sense of positivity that that optimistic outlook that you know we may not know all the answers it may be confusing ahead but you know we'll figure this out and and yeah. we can do that i think that optimistic curiosity again in my own observation of the people who you know, I've worked with or observed uh, as an analyst. Uh, I think they're the people that kind of step forward and people want to follow. And ultimately, they are the people at a personal and a sort of corporate level that have the most impact. Yeah, I like that. That's great. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your vision about what is possible in the future in technology and also identifying the issues we have now so we can have more clarity about here's what we need to address. So thank you so much for sharing all of that today. Thanks. So it's been great talking to you. If people want to get in touch with you and they are interested in your book, where would they find you and the book? Yeah, the book uh, can be found at tamethemonster.com. That's a, a dedicated <laughs> That's book size for the, <laughs> for the book. And then uh, people will find me at Twitter at, at Benjamin Pring. Okay, great. Wonderful. Well, thank you for the work you're doing in the world, Ben. Thank you. It's been, uh, it's been terrific being with you. Thanks for listening. Join me for more episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and help us spread the word rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. To discover more about your impact, schedule a business impact assessment one-on-one -on -one with me 
60 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Go to workalchemy.com BIA to schedule your business impact assessment. This podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Cherokee, Tuscarora, Catawba, and Waccamaw Sioux and people. 